1977, professors at one of the largest public universities in the country started complaining that parts of the ceiling in their offices and classrooms were flaking off and falling. The university conducted a study, widespread testing, in more than 100 buildings to find out what is this stuff? Is it dangerous? It turns out it most certainly is. That ceiling uh, material was uh, asbestos containing. The university starts to remove it, and simultaneously it sues the asbestos manufacturer, Johns Manville, for $8.5 million to clean it up. The U.S. Justice Department had recommended that the owners of school buildings in particular should do just that, that they should file suit against the uh, companies that had sold the asbestos material and get, get some financial help in, in getting it properly removed. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of schools. They wanted somebody else to pay for it. Facing so much litigation, St. John's Manville and other asbestos manufacturers like it into bankruptcy. Well, it turns out that that company only ended up paying uh, a small fraction of that, less than $500,000. And they were paying, you know, nickels on the dollar to settle. John's Manville created far more liability than its assets could ever pay. And so the university is left on the hook for a pretty big cleanup bill. And when officials realize this... Then they do this about-face. They change their policy to going from removing as much as possible to removing as little as possible. Out of one side of their mouth, they're trying to get money to get rid of it because it's so dangerous. But then when they realize they're not going to get paid, they just shut everything down. Our analysis of asbestos settlements and current records show that this was the case for dozens of universities across the United States. One of the things that may have entered into it was this huge public relations outreach that was done by a group calling itself the Safe Buildings Alliance. It's basically a shell organization. They are quite clever. According to documents that have come out, the Safe Buildings Alliance was actually something that was formed at the behest of a PR firm um, to help companies that were using asbestos for buildings. To basically convince um, the public at large that uh, asbestos in buildings uh, was really not a problem unless you disturbed it and that, that the best thing you could do was just leave everything in place. The industry used a lot of tactics like the big tobacco folks did. It's like, it's really not a problem, don't worry. Do you think that that's true? Does the science support that argument? No. I mean, the stuff is falling apart. Building materials don't get stronger over time, right? They delaminate, they fall apart, they, they break apart. So that as time goes by, this material becomes more and more friable, more and more dangerous. Do you think that these, and these rulings had a ripple effect? It is a ripple effect when they find out that, hey, we're not getting reimbursed for this by these property damage trusts. So therefore, we're not, spend, we're not going to spend our money on it. We're not going to remove it. We're just going to keep an eye on it, which is a lot cheaper. So today, how much asbestos remains in these buildings on college campuses? I, I guess nobody really knows that answer. Based upon what I've researched, uh, I can only think that it's, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of square feet of asbestos-containing building materials. Based on what I've seen from my research on certain schools, it's a staggering amount of asbestos in each and every school. People don't know how much because nobody says how much. 
From the University of Florida's Breckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannam, and you are listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. Hi, this is Mike. Hey, Mike. This is Sarah Gannam. Hey, Sarah. So, Mike, let's just start with a simple question. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Michael Robb. I'm from Gibsonia, Pennsylvania, which is a su- suburb just north of Pittsburgh. I actually started off as an asbestos defense attorney. My dad, uh, my father, uh, represented an asbestos mine uh, in Canada for years. And uh, I actually worked with him for a few years. And I always felt bad for the guys that got sick, uh, you know, that breathed in the asbestos at these different uh, locations. And I always wanted to make the switch and, and represent the guy that was injured. And I did that back in 2006. So ever since 2006, I've been representing steel mill workers, chemical plant workers, power plant workers, any type of laborer or person who was, uh, you know, worked with their hands for a living uh, that developed lung cancer, mesothelioma. The type of people that are often the victims of these kinds of things. Exactly. And, and, and they're the ones that's on that are on everyone's radar, right? They're the guys that, you know, worked at, like my grandfather worked in the steel mill his whole life, right? That's the guy that you think is going to call you every day and say, hey, I just got diagnosed with this. Um, you know, will you represent me? Um, but as the years have gone on, well, we started seeing cases where people were, couldn't tell where they were exposed because these people weren't your typical steel mill worker or power plant worker. They, these people were, you know, educated. They were, uh, did not work in heavy industry. Your, your first thought is, where could this person have been exposed to asbestos? And had I never had a professor, a college professor, a PhD in OCHEM and organic chemistry, how does that guy, a, a, a PhD in organic chemistry, uh, how does he get mesothelioma, right? And it's like, hmm. And then you start looking at where he was working, the classrooms that he's in. How many clients do you have right now related to universities? Probably close to five now. Asbestos is a mineral mined out of the ground. It's fire resistant and it's a great insulator. And that made it really appealing as a building material in the mid 20th century. Back in the day, people would put asbestos in uh, gloves, clothing, uh, insulation for thermal properties. Uh, so you would find it often in steel mills and power plants and in other industrial sites uh, for various uses. But it also became popular for use in certain building products like floor tile, ceiling tile, uh, sealing sprays for acoustical purposes and to stop the spread of fire, as well as thermal insulations. But asbestos was too good to be true, and health science quickly proved that it causes cancer, a specific kind of cancer, in the lining of the lungs or stomach, called mesothelioma. The only known cause of mesothelioma is inhalation of asbestos fibers. When you look online and start doing some research, you see that almost every college and university uh, have older buildings, and these older buildings uh, during their construction in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s contained uh, asbestos-containing building materials like floor tile, ceiling tile, pipe insulation, HVAC, ductwork, 
Uh, and ceiling sprays. Where you see that somebody has exposure inside the building that he's working in, sitting behind a desk or teaching classes in because he's standing on asbestos floor tiles or he's standing under asbestos ceiling spray. So it's it's hard to avoid being exposed to asbestos when you're in a, uh, in a building and you're standing on it and you're standing under it. I have a, a case against... Uh, Pennsylvania State University for a gentleman uh, named Peter Lebowski, who was a professor at Penn State um, from 1979 to 2002, and he was diagnosed with mesothelioma. First thing we did is just do some general research on uh, Penn State University and other universities to see if there's asbestos contamination there. Uh, and I was shocked to learn that, and this is with respect to not just uh, Penn State, but with many universities, that they have their environmental health and safety documents that say, this is how we address um, radiation contamination, this is how we, we address uh, water contamination from these labs, or this is how we address our asbestos problem. Sorry, my, uh, my dog's sparking there. Oh, that's okay. This is the age of work from home. Right. So what I was saying, Sarah, is that you go online and you look at these colleges and you should be able to see how they address their buildings that have uh, asbestos in them. Some some universities um, put a lot of information out there saying, here's asbestos in this building, in this room. And others just say, we have an asbestos control program and we monitor it and that's about it. So there's either uh, very little information uh, or there's some information, never a ton of information. But the question is, is in, in, in 2020, why is there still asbestos in these buildings? And why don't we know about it? Right, right. The short answer is that we don't know because this is a true data desert. There is no federal law forcing universities to monitor air quality or share that information. There's nothing even forcing them to report to the public where the asbestos is on campus. And the reason there is no regulation of asbestos is another legal case, one that had a huge impact on the environment, not just on campuses, but everywhere. It happened in 1989, the same year that Penn State abruptly changed its policy. The plaintiffs were manufacturers, and the defendant was the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Prior to that case, the asbestos industry in the United States was on its deathbed. Asbestos and its role with cancer banned from use in the United States. For more than a decade, anti-asbestos activism had been collecting up victories. In 1976, the Clean Air Act classified asbestos as a pollutant and gave the EPA the power to regulate it. Then, in 1980, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, better known as OSHA, announced that no level of exposure is safe. In 1986, the EPA placed restrictions on its use in schools. Environmental consultant and asbestos historian Barry Castleman told me, Cases of mesothelioma were starting to be reported in school teachers with uh, no other known history of exposure to asbestos except that they worked in buildings that had asbestos materials in them. And then in the summer of 1989, the EPA issued the asbestos ban and phase-out rule, which would have stopped all manufacturing and importing of asbestos. The environmental activists were not just making strides, they had crossed the finish line and were celebrating. But the victory was short-lived. First, we want to indicate that EPA's proposal to ban asbestos lacks scientific credibility. Back in those days, there was what was called the race to the courthouse. When the government published a regulation, 
and industry wanted to challenge that regulation, they would pick the most reactionary of the circuit courts that they could possibly find of the 12 U.S. circuit courts and file their challenge to the EPA rules there. The asbestos industry did just that. Uh, that the scientific basis of the proposed rule was very seriously flawed. They sued the EPA, arguing in court that banning asbestos would lead to job loss and economic crisis. Death by regulation, they called it. EPA clearly overstates its case concerning the risk to the general population of the United States. The argument prevailed. So it was some cracker court in New Orleans that basically decided that the EPA rules uh, would have to be overturned. Just two years after it was enacted, the ban was overturned by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Louisiana, claiming the EPA failed to prove that a ban was the least burdensome alternative to regulating asbestos. The EPA never tried again. And because of that, the United States is one of the few industrialized nations in the world without an asbestos ban. It put us back in the company of countries like Syria, Kyrgyzstan, Russia and China. Like if I go to Whole Foods, I can make a consumer choice to buy something organic, something that's natural, or something that's just less expensive. But I have that option. But when it comes to contaminated uh, asbestos products, because there's no ban, I don't know where there is asbestos. All of the experts I talked to for this story, they all mentioned the same thing. When it comes to contaminants in our environment, asbestos is particularly frustrating because most people don't know that it is no longer banned. And the ban got more publicity than it's being overturned in court two years later. I think most people would be absolutely flabbergasted to hear that it's perfectly legal to use asbestos in many commercial products. That's Eric Olson, the Senior Director for Health at the Natural Resource Defense Council. There's still a lot of uses that can cause people to be exposed in a way that's really dangerous. It is the perfect crime. Like, I live in L.A., and you couldn't write the script for asbestos. And this is Linda Reinstein, president and co-founder of the Asbestos Disease Awareness Organization. Like, it's been known for over 100 years that asbestos exposure could cause disease, suffering, and deaths. And why don't we know about this? I say nine out of 10 Americans uh, think asbestos has been banned. So it's been brilliant. The only real effective action that has stopped asbestos use in the last 40 years are lawsuits. Lawsuits like the one Mike Robb is filing. Frankly, it's up to the trial lawyers to sue on behalf of people that have gotten mesothelioma, cancer, um, to force the industry to change practices. The industry is only worried about their wallets. The 1986 law that placed restrictions on the use of asbestos in schools does still exist. However, it only applies to K-12 institutions, not to universities. So why do we not mandate that the colleges and universities that are getting, you know, federal funds, state funds. When you're in 12th grade in high school, the very next year, if you go to, a, you can go to a college campus and be totally exposed to asbestos. So the question is, is how do you allow people to be exposed to a carcinogen and you just look the other way? It just, it, it dumbfounds me. 
Some universities post what's called an environmental health and safety report. We reviewed dozens of them, and what we found is that those reports are varied, and many won't tell you very much. Of the 50 that we reviewed, only four schools say what buildings contain asbestos. Some mentioned that more than 90% of buildings contain it, but won't tell you which ones. None of them posted air quality test results for the public to see. And there isn't a do-it-yourself way of figuring this out on your own. Because you can't see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, the average person can't identify asbestos or manage the risk. The result is that we are held hostage by the claims of universities. We have to trust them when they say they're taking care of it, with no system of checks and balances. But when you drill down into some of the documents that are posted online, it's not too comforting. Here are some examples from our research. At several universities, we found documents that advise individual departments to purchase floor mats to be placed underneath chairs that would prevent them from scratching asbestos tiles. Some universities warn that items like adhesives behind whiteboards and bathroom tile grout are not sampled but could contain asbestos. One major state school had just a single line buried in a 25-page document posted online, warning that the ceiling surface does contain asbestos. The only information provided was to avoid contact. And at the University of Montana, there were calls for widespread testing last year because asbestos was found in a building that housed a preschool. But there are no recent test results for the rest of the campus posted online. It feels to me that... Uh, these asbestos control programs uh, are only uh, established and, and put online to make people think that the, any asbestos that's in this place is being controlled. But you don't really have access to the data. You don't have access to the testing. You don't even know if they did done any testing or performed any testing. So you don't know if there's air sampling. You don't know how much asbestos is in what room. And if it is in a room, is it in the floor? Is it in the ceiling? Is it coming through the air ducts? You don't really know. So I think generally speaking, from what I've seen in my experience, it doesn't appear that the information that people need to know or see is being disseminated by any university. It gives asbestos control program a whole new meaning, doesn't it? To keep it under wraps and, you know, under the guise of, oh, we have an asbestos control program. Well, you know, what are you controlling? Are, are you controlling the asbestos, the hazard? Or are you just controlling, trying to keep it quiet so people don't get up in arms about it? They're limiting the information and, and just hoping or making you feel like everything's under control, right? And, and that, that's, that's worse, I think, than, than doing nothing. In the case of Penn State professor Peter Lebowski, the university was forced to turn over 20,000 pages of documents decades of internal memos and reports detailing Penn State's knowledge of the problem and its failure to clean it up. The timeline goes all the way back to the 1970s, when Penn State sued the asbestos manufacturer and didn't get the $8.5 million it needed to get rid of all the asbestos. At the time, the university admitted that nearly 450 buildings have asbestos in them. Penn State's industrial hygienist, the person in charge of identifying workplace hazards, 
was a woman named Maureen Claver, and she gave an interview to the campus newspaper saying the asbestos is everywhere. Three days later, a memo went out to a number of officials, including Claver, stating that the university cannot afford to remove the asbestos as it had planned. It says, quote, In all future projects, our goal should be to minimize the removal of asbestos to only what is absolutely required. Obviously, this will help us a lot in the area of project budgets. In the version of the document that Penn State handed over for the lawsuit, those words are underlined in pen, and in the margins next to those markings, there is a handwritten note from Claver. It says, come on, with two exclamation points. Clearly, Claver wasn't buying it. And for the next 17 years, Rob says officials basically sat on the problem. Documents show they didn't warn students or professors. They didn't even keep tabs on where the asbestos was until the early 2000s, when figuring out what buildings contained asbestos became a way to improve the look of their balance sheets. In 2006, Penn State goes and tests all their buildings, uh, more of their buildings or the rest of their buildings, and fi they find that um, just over 500 of their buildings contain asbestos. And from a financial standpoint, what would it cost them to remove it? When you look at everything now, uh, I think the documents that uh, or our math added up to around $35 million to remove all the asbestos. And the price increases because they didn't act on it and the market changed? Exactly. So every year it gets more and more expensive to remove asbestos. So it's uh, it requires a lot of permitting. You can't just take asbestos and bury it anywhere. It has to go to a, a certified landfill. You have to have certain uh, types of trucks that can remove it and carry it from uh, from one point A to point B. So it's expensive and it's a process, uh, but it's not impossible because companies do it all the time. You know that you have widespread asbestos contamination in your buildings. The longer you wait, you know that it's going to cost more down the line. When you say it's really expensive to remove it, I mean, that's relative, right? You're talking about giant universities with pretty large budgets. It's a great point. So these, these massive university systems that have billions of dollars, not only in, in annual revenue, right, or in annual uh, operating budgets, but they're also worth billions. From my position, spending money that you have to make people safe is worth every penny. When it comes to the safety of your faculty and your staff and your students, uh, what prices, how much is their life worth? We did some math. Penn State's operating budget for 2020, it's $6.8 billion. Plus, it has an endowment of $3.2 billion. 800 million of which can be spent at the discretion of the board. If it costs $36 million to clean up this stuff, that's less than half of 1% of the $10 billion the university states on its tax documents. For the last 10 years, each year, Mike Robb says that Penn State has spent more money on landscaping than it did to abate asbestos. Meanwhile, students studying about the hazards of asbestos in a class taught by an industrial hygienist are learning in a classroom building that still contains asbestos. And if you're keeping track, it's more than 40 years after they started looking for it. And when you have billions of dollars available, year after year, billions of dollars, you have a net worth of billions of dollars and you have endowments worth billions of dollars, why do you have asbestos in your buildings? 
it's because you don't give a shit and you don't want to spend the money to, to remove it. That's why, period. Anybody that says anything different is wrong, right? I mean, why do you spend hundreds of millions of dollars for uh, football practice uh, uh, arenas and fields and things like that because you want to spend the money? Or you go out and you tell people, hey, we need money for this. Well, you'll never see one of these universities going around begging their uh, alumni for, hey, we need money to remove the asbestos that we expose you guys all to for the last, you know, 100 years. It'll never happen. In court, Penn State argued that it has nothing to hide, that it turned over tens of thousands of pages of documents and attorneys for the university indicate they will fight the premise of the case. In response to our request for an interview, the university said it won't comment on pending litigation. If you're not going to talk about a problem or tell anybody about a problem, are you really going to sneak around and spend uh, money to remove it uh, behind the scenes when nobody knows? Or are you just going to pretend like everything's fine and, and hope that it doesn't hurt anybody? More documents obtained as part of the lawsuit show that Penn State found it would not be economically feasible to do air monitoring. So if you don't do air monitoring, right, uh, you don't come in and, and actually sample the air and test the air and then figure out how many asbestos fibers are in the air per cubic centimeter, how do you know that it's safe in those buildings? If you don't look, which they don't, then you don't find, and that's good for them. If you don't want to tell everybody about all the hazardous uh, asbestos, then the last thing you want to do is go and, and start doing air sampling, right? Because if you find something that you don't like and the numbers are too high or it's dangerous, then you know, then it's on their hands to whether they're going to report it or not. So they're not doing any air sampling. It's not that they're keeping the information from the public. They're really just not doing it. They don't even know. Yeah, exactly. But what about all the fiber fallout? And as a building vibrates or shakes or naturally with, uh, you know, air movements and uh, kids slamming doors or walking on floors and it causes vibration, those ceilings uh, shed. It's called fiber fallout and give off fibers to which Penn State has reported that they feel it's a very low level of fiber fallout uh, and the exposures are very small. So basically, don't worry about it. Have you guys been able to visit the um, office where your client worked? Yeah, we've been on a few site inspections there. Were you able to do any air quality testing? No, we didn't do any air testing. We were allowed to do bulk sampling where you test the, the certain materials. So we were able to test uh, materials in the mechanical room uh, of one of the buildings, which uh, is where the HVAC systems are. Can you tell me what you found? I can't tell you the results, um, but I can tell you that, you know, our suspicions were correct and that um, there was asbestos present not only in the actual building itself, but also in the mechanical room where the HVAC units are. That's the room that draws the air that everyone breathes because it goes from the HVAC system into the vents and then into the rooms, the building rooms, right? That's the air that everyone breathes. Exactly. And you found asbestos in there. Yeah, we did. You know, it's our position that he was exposed every single minute of every single day that he worked inside of these buildings because he wasn't holding his breath in there for 22 years when he worked there. One of the many documents that this lawsuit has uncovered is a report that shows that Penn State was aware that asbestos travels through the HVAC system and disperses the toxin throughout the building. Another document shows that when construction would begin, officials in the office of the physical plant would warn maintenance workers about the dangers of asbestos. 
And in some cases, they did remove it if it was already part of a budgeted renovation project. But still, to this day, Penn State has no formal asbestos awareness program. This may be a really naive question, but if there is no law regulating it, how are you able to sue a university for someone's death? Well, in most instances, you could file a claim for negligence, meaning you you owed a duty to the person and you failed to protect that person by by not protecting them from the asbestos, by not telling them about the asbestos, and not uh, providing a reasonably safe work environment. And that's how we're able to go after universities for these types of claims. Legal cases like this are not common. We were only able to find a handful of others. And Rob says it's perhaps because the most challenging thing about taking on asbestos on college campuses is that unlike any other topic we'll explore this season, the consequences are not immediate. Mesothelioma does not develop for 20 to 40 years after exposure to asbestos fibers. Imagine being diagnosed 40 years after college and then trying to backtrack to show that you were exposed Would you even remember what dorm you lived in, where your classes were held? If you think about it, my grandfather was a steel mill worker for U.S. Steel, right? Worked in the same department his whole life. He knows where he was, right? Uh, You and I uh, are a little bit different, right? So I I went to undergrad, went to law school. You know, you're going to different, you're you're going to different rooms, different buildings, and you're not really thinking about, is, is there a hazard in here that could give me cancer 20 or 30 or 40 years down the road, right? So these cases against the universities and colleges are, they're unique in that, one, they're not easy, right? Because you gotta do a lot of investigation. Every business, whether you're a school or, or a corporation, they're banking on the length of time. And the more I look at universities and colleges and their, their, their procedures and their methods about how they address asbestos, it feels like a very common theme where it's, they kinda know where it is, it's, it's low key, they don't tell people about it, and then they just sit back and hope that uh, it doesn't come back to haunt them in the form of litigation down the road. And even though he's seeing more cases pop up. I, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg, these types of cases. If I stopped you on the street and said, hey, Sarah, there's asbestos, all kind of asbestos in that old steel mill that's closed down over there. You'd be like, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> like it wouldn't shock you. But if you stop people and say, hey, uh, where's your kid go to school? Oh, yeah, there's asbestos in that building. They'd be like, what? Why? You know, it would shock people. And horrify them, I think. Yeah. And, you know, it's like you're so protective of your kids and you want them to do great and you want to you want to give them a world and give them a, a, the best opportunities you can. And for someone to go to a college and sit in a classroom that has where there's asbestos present and no one tells them baffles me that that's that's how some of these institutions uh, are are. are are treating their students, their faculty, their professors. An institution that has, like Penn State, has a a hospital. They have a teaching hospital. They train doctors how to to treat people and diagnose people with mesothelioma and to treat them for it. But the same university and their undergraduate uh, uh, buildings uh, potentially are exposing every single person that goes into certain buildings to asbestos, which causes those diseases. It's it's so contradictory and so 
in my mind, outlandish. It breaks my heart when people say, oh, my kid, my daughter goes to Penn State. And I say, oh, what classes, you know, what buildings does she take class? Oh, she goes here and here. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, if you only knew, you know, it's, it's sad. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's terrifying. You're not thinking about your 18-year-old taking a poli-sci class at Penn State or Pitt or wherever, and they're sitting right underneath an asbestos-coated ceiling, you know? It's it, people. It's just not on anyone's radar, and I'm I'm hoping that I could help change that. Next time, the Irvine freshman was found unresponsive. Eighteen-year-old student pronounced dead. On why don't we know? Do you feel like students generally knew what happened to Alex? The general population, no. One of the most frustrating and persistent stories in higher education. We are just willing to. Uh, lose young people every year for what? These are public institutions um, that have a serious uh, health problem on their campus. Hazing deaths and why we can't seem to stop them. People don't want to create that kind of record because that kind of record easily available would be used against an institution in a lawsuit. This episode was written, reported, and produced by me, Sarah Gannam. The associate producer is Tori Whitten. In addition, Adriana Marino and Chastity Maynard filed public records requests for this episode. This episode was edited by Luke Barrientos. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was also done by Luke Barrientos. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information about this episode, visit www.whydontweknow.org. <laughs>